Welcome to the 39th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Steve Alton. Alton's latest novel is Grim Reaper, End of Days. Also, I just wanted to make a quick note because I know from trading emails and voicemail messages with uh, several of my listeners that people are interested in other podcasts having to do with interviewing writers and authors. Um, so I thought I would just take a moment um, over the next several podcasts and mention some of the podcasts that I listen to and that you may be interested in. The first one that I would mention is John Armstrong's If You're Just Joining Us. And you can check that out is at ifyourejustjoiningus.com. Armstrong, who I will actually have an interview with in a few episodes, is a published science fiction writer and interviews a number of science fiction and fantasy writers. Again, the name of that podcast is If You're Just Joining Us. Again, stay tuned for my interview with Steve Alton, author of Grim Reaper, End of Days. Well, this is uh, Jeffrey Deaver, author of, uh, most recently, The Burning Wire, and uh, soon to be author of the next continuation James Bond novel. I spend a lot of time writing, a lot of time researching my books, um, but uh, when I'm not doing that, I, I love uh, listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast, which you can hear at readingandwritingpodcast.com. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is suspense and thriller novelist Steve Alton. Steve's latest novel, Grim Reaper, End of Days, has just been published and is available in bookstores now. Steve, welcome to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Good, good. Well, I mentioned your new novel, Grim Reaper, End of Days. If my listeners haven't heard about Grim Reaper, can you give them a sense of what to expect with your latest novel? Yeah, Grim Reaper, End of Days is a, is a gripping modern-day Dante's Inferno. It, it takes place in December of 2012, which is the Mind Counter's Doomsday Prophecy date, when a man-made version of the Black Plague is unleashed in Manhattan. And the hero of the story is an injured uh, war vet returning from his fourth deployment in Iraq, and and uh, he has to journey through nine circles of hell uh, that's become Manhattan during this plague in order to bring the only vaccine to his wife and child. Great. That certainly sounds exciting. Well, uh, you know, it, End of Days is in the title, and um, a lot of research went into this, this novel, and, and um, according to the Bible, when evil runs rampant, the imbalance between light and darkness summons the angel of de death to walk the earth. Now, the end of days is actually a cause and effect supernal event, meaning it's, it may be triggered by man, but it's actually predestined by God. It's a response to man's negative actions, and, and that's sort of what happened at the time of Noah, when man's wicked nature required a cleansing, but it but, Jeff, uh, what a lot of people don't realize and what really spurred me on to write the book is it happened again historically in 1346 when the bubonic plague raced through Asia and Europe and killed about 60% of the world's population. And many of these people who were sick and dying reported seeing a dark-cloaked angel of death, the Grim Reaper dancing around the dead, um, and that's how the legend of the Grim Reaper began. So in Grim Reaper End of Days, the Grim Reaper has returned in 2012 and, and is actually following the hero through Manhattan. Uh, but there's some pretty startling parallels to the pre-pandemic years, which occurred 666 years before the 2012 date in our own society today. 
and what are some of those parallels? Well, back in uh, the pre-Bobonic years in 1346, uh, greed and corruption were running amok. Um, uh, the church was actually divided back then um, uh, between um, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, which was sort of the federal government at the time, between Avignon, France, and Rome. Um, we say um, uh, there were false prophets uh, that, that were preaching hatred uh, against Jews and other immigrants, and, and these false prophets led to um, basically a, a toxic environment, uh, which led to the pogrom, which was a massacre of tens of thousands of Jews and immigrants by Christian zealots. So uh, we can, uh, you know, today's false prophets would probably fall into the um, the line on cable news networks and over the airwaves. Um, you know, people who read prophets while basically, you know, making a living dividing our nation. And uh, they're creating, a, you know, the, these polarizing effects are creating a boiling pot that, you know, st stirs people up and it sure. creates a, a toxic environment and similar to the things that we faced 666 years ago in Europe. Sure. I'm, I'm curious, what, what did you discover in your research about uh, the, the 2012 prophecy of the um, end of days or the end of the earth. Um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, didn't you, isn't that a Mayan belief? Well, the Mayan calendar prophesies that the world will end in, in, uh, on December 21st, the winter solstice of 2012. And, and having written, um, a series on the, the Mayan prophecies, uh, called domain, um, uh, I'm somewhat familiar with it. When you, first of all, when you, when you say Mayan calendar, you have to understand that we're not talking about a calendar that's um, something that you hang on your wall. We're talking about an instrument that measures how long it takes the Earth to revolve around the sun. Right. Uh, somehow, 2,000 years ago, the Mayans, who had never mastered the wheel, were able to create an instrument that uh, is a 10,000th of a day more accurate than the Gregorian calendar, which uh, our modern-day calendar is based upon. And the, the Mayan calendar itself was actually made up of four calendars in one, sort of working like the interlocking gears of a clock. And uh, the, count, the long count calendar was made up of five great cycles, uh, the last four of which uh, ended in cataclysm, and the fifth one ends on December 21st in the year 2012. Gotcha. Uh, many writers have trouble identifying exactly where they got an idea for a novel. Do you remember when you got the idea or how you got the idea for Grim Reaper? I, I remember the first spark of the idea, sort of getting a massage on a massage table <laughs> uh, and, and my mind wandering. And, and that sort of developed into, um, you know, a, a kernel of thought that led to uh, research about Dante's Inferno, and, and which is not an easy book. Um, it's actually um, more of a poem than a book. N not an act, uh, a very, not not an easy thing to read, I should say. And uh, that led to uh, research in Manhattan and walking the path of the hero. And there was a lot of other things that sort of came up in the two-year process of writing the book, including information. I had met a gentleman at a book signing that uh, was involved at Fort Detrick, Maryland, uh, the place that uh, is responsible for covertly making biological weapons. And uh, he told me some information that uh, he allowed me to use in the book. So there's a lot of factual things that flow through Grim Reaper 
um, that uh, entwine the story in things that are going to give you pause when you read them. Right. Um, your first novel in the mid-1990s was Meg, a novel about a megalodon, an ancient underwater predator that was thought to be extinct. What was the publication process like for Meg? What did you have to go through to get that first novel published? Uh, strangely, uh, getting Meg done was, back then in 1996, uh, was um, somewhat easier than it is today. Um First of all, uh, I had I had uh, set the goal to write the book, and I had a, a, a job during the day, what I call a job, it just over broke, where I was really struggling, and so I had to write the book from 10 o'clock at night to 3 in the morning and on weekends, uh, on an old-fashioned word processor in my living room, and uh, uh, when I was done, I had about a 450-page manuscript and no outlets of where to take it, so I got a book on how to get published, you know basic publishing for dummies, and mm-hmm. uh, it said to write a two-page query letter to literary agents who handle your genre. In this case, it was fiction. So I sent out, I literally sent out two-page letters to every agent in the country who handled fiction. And at the end of about a two- or three-week period, I had only heard back from one person who was interested in the story, but he felt that Meg needed a lot of editing that was sort of like cutting a fish. You chop off its head, you chop off its tail, and you start with the meat in the middle. And uh, for $6,000, he was willing to help me out. Well, I didn't have $6,000, but I had a 71 Chevy Malibu convertible that my dad had bought me when I was 16 years old, and it was a classic. And I sold the car and borrowed some money here and there and paid for the editing fees. And then on uh, Friday the 13th in September of 1996, I went to work. I was working as a general manager of a meat company and was fired. And uh, went home to my wife. We had, you know very little money in the bank, family of five to support, and, and I hadn't even been working at the company long enough to collect unemployment. And I said, honey, you know, don't worry, this is the best thing that could have happened. Um, now I get to work on my second book, and she about threw a frying pan in my head. And um, <laughs> four days later, Meg went out to the six biggest publishing houses in the country, and buoyed by the fact that we had a, a signed the first look deal with Disney's Hollywood Pictures for the uncompleted manuscript. Um, you know, we basically garnered a, a seven-figure two-book deal with uh, Bantam Doubleday. Great. That's that's a great story. Um, I'm curious. And, and, and that and that began a roller coaster ride <laughs> in my 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 uh, writing career. Right. Well, obviously, you you I'm sure you've watched the the recent impact of ebooks over the last twelve to eighteen months. I think it's moved much faster than anyone would have ever predicted, um, especially with the growth of the Amazon Kindle and now uh, the iPad, which blew past um, anybody's estimate of how much it would sell, and the fact that people can read Kindle uh, books on the the iPad or 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 use the um, Apple iBook Store. I'm curious, what what do you feel the that eBooks have? What has been the impact on book publishing, and and do you think that publication process would have been different for you, um, for Meg, if if you were trying to do Meg now? Do you think you would have self published it as an eBook? Well, uh, first of all, I, uh, the rights to Meg, um, I bought them back from the publisher. 
Right. And uh, I'm working with my uh, movie producer, Bell Avery, right now uh, on that, which, as a matter of fact, just a few minutes before you and I are speaking, I had a conversation with her about uh, the impact of e-books and, and some of the, the neat things that we can do with not only Meg and uh, but some of my future books, because my books tend to be very visual. And, you know, creating an e-book program where, you know, you get to the end of the chapter and you could sort of take a, a look at a video that, you know, of a, of a shark attacking a T-Rex or whatever it might be. Right. Um, so to answer your question, uh, as an author, like any publisher, I have some trepidations about e-books because it, it's actually, you know, obviously it's carving a big place in the marketplace. Um, and... Um, creating a situation where, you know, we're not sure what the, you know, the future of booksellers are. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's going to be a transition. I, I, I personally think as a reader that uh, I will always want to settle down with a good book in my hand as opposed to an iPad. Sure. Um, <clears throat> first of all, it's, it's a lot easier on your eyes. I mean, I spend, you know, 40% of my day in front of a computer screen and, and you know, there's a lot of difference than reading a, a book on a, a computer screen and, and, and reading a, uh, the, the printed page. Um, and it's just easier on your eyes. Uh, so I don't, I don't know if books are ever going to be replaced. Uh, sure. I, obviously, e-books are going to have a bigger chunk of the market because it's new. But, you know, even if you look at all the e-book sales, it, you know, 80 to 85% of the market is still out of bookstores. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, in terms of the nuts and bolts of writing, what, what is your process? Do you do you outline your novels, or are you a more organic writer who kind of sees where the story takes you? Well, a little bit of both. I mean, I, I always start with a concept and research it, and once I research it, I create a, a treatment, um, a synopsis of the story, to at least have a map of where I'm going, and then uh, uh, as the process begins, begins it becomes more organic and that uh you know i I start the day off with an idea of where the chapter is going to go and at the end of the day i have a chapter and sometimes i had no idea was ever going to take that route you know research throughout the day uh or just organic writing and your your mind takes it into places that you never thought it was going to go so uh but there's still the signpost of on, on the treatment of you know where i have to loop the story around to get to the conclusion that i want to get to so um it's a little bit of both right what what advice do you offer to aspiring writers someone who may be listening who uh wants to have the career that you've had or, or publish you know their thrillers what advice would you offer them uh I guess the first piece of advice I offer is um, don't write about things you know. Write about things you want to read. If you write about things you know, then it's going to probably be a pretty boring book and a probably a pretty thin one. Uh, if you write about things you like to read, then it forces you to go do the research and become an expert or at least well-versed in the things that you're going to be writing about. And, and it's the research that will flesh out the story. Because, you know, I when I start off a book... I don't know, I don't have the knowledge to complete that book. The research is part of the process of writing the book, and, and in, the, in that process, the storyline is flushed out. So it's, you know, it's, um, it is a process, and it's, you know, don't try to cheat the process by writing about Aunt Mildred's uh, favorite umbrella stand because 
you may know well about it, but it's not going to sell. Right. Who are some of your favorite writers? Who do you enjoy reading? You mean besides myself? Yeah, besides yourself. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I grew up with Crichton and Clancy, and and uh, um, Thomas Harris. I think is, is an extraordinary writer, *A Silence of the Lambs*, and uh, Anne Rice's uh, original vampire stories. I, I enjoyed, and uh, for that matter, the first book that I remember ever reading and really being scared of and enjoying in a fun way was uh, Bram Stoker's *Dracula*, and uh, grew up with the Ian Fleming James Bond novel, so you know you have to have a love of reading in order to be a writer, and and uh, I think all writers will attest to that. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Steve Alton, successful thriller writer and author of the new novel *Grim Reaper: End of Days*. Where can people find you online, Steve? Well, you can go to my website. It's an interactive website, www.stevealtonalten.com. If you go there, you can read previews of any of my novels, and uh, you can take video tours, and, and um, my email address is there. I answer all my own email. And, um, you can get find copies of first edition copies of Grim Rebranded Days at Barnes, Barnes Noble and Borders and Books a Million and, and also Amazon.com. Great. Well, thanks for joining us, Steve. Appreciate it, Jeff. This is Lee Child, and I'm listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Thanks for listening to my latest podcast. If you have a chance, please leave a review of the podcast in iTunes. It only takes a moment. Until next time, read some good books and be well. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.